We are coming towards the very, very end of this section, really of this book. And today we're going to be focusing on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. Just a couple of little things that are there, but each one so potent and so meaningful and so relevant. And so I want us to consider them today. Listen as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, come at this time and as we open up your word, Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness and mercy in giving us your word. Lord, you have given us so many things in your scriptures. We thank you for every book, every chapter, every verse. We, we are aware of the value and the significance of it. Lord, we are thankful for the times that you even are pleased to uh, repeat things that have been said before, to stress things, uh, to explain things. Lord, because we are your people and we need that correction. We need that instruction. Lord, we need that urging and that imploring. We need those reminders and redirecting. And I just pray, Lord, as we consider what to some extent is uh, obvious things today, I pray that your spirit would take these things and, and cause us not to be satisfied merely to be aware of and to know them, but to seek out ways under the hand of your grace to live these things out more diligently, more fervently, more genuinely, more vibrantly. God, I ask that you would stir by your spirit to our hearts and minds very clear, powerful, and profound application of these important things, these important directives given to us through your apostle by the Holy Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Really, as we've been coming to the end of Thessalonians, he's been loading up on the instructions. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And he's continuing that to some extent today. We had noticed that some of the earlier ones focused on the interaction between one another, people to people. And then some of the other ones were focusing kind of on, on you before God and your interaction with him. Now today when we come into it, it's still beginning to deal with and wonderfully blending these ideas, the, the importance of the working of the Spirit of God. It begins here by saying, do not quench the Spirit. Now that's, it's an interesting phrase, it's, it's very short and very brief, but it's something that I want us to carefully consider. The only reason the word of God would say do not do it is because it can be done. It warns against it because it not only can be done, it is done. And if it can be done and if it is done, then we need to know what it is and how not to do it. How to avoid doing that. Because again, the phrasing is peculiar. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Because we generally in our own 
common expression in the use of modern English use the term quench almost exclusively with regard to thirst. Okay? And so that doesn't carry the sense of what's going on here in this passage. The word that's being used here is not an ancient word that would deal with quenching thirst. It is an ancient word that deals more with the idea of extinguishing a fire. Which is a, it is a very different thing. To quench a fire, maybe we might... No, we don't use that phrasing at all. We put it out. You cover it up. You put a blanket on it. You stifle it. You, you, you cause it to begin to diminish. You restrain it. You oppose it. And uh, this is a warning to believers... Which is an important thing. The world at large is not going to quench the Holy Spirit in the way that we are. Now what's encouraging about this to those who are in Christ. The instruction is do not quench the Holy Spirit. It's not saying you will lose the Holy Spirit. It's not saying he's gone. It's not saying if you so offend him and oppose him, he will walk away. Actually, the scriptures uh, indicate it wonderfully and clearly uh, as, as we come into this section of scripture. It, it opens it up with, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. It says a similar thing, but instead of quench, it uses a different word. It says this in Ephesians 4 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because I, uh, there's value in seeing the idea of grieving because quench could, people could start to think of the Holy Spirit like a fly, fire, like a flame, like a power. And somehow not recognize the personality, the personhood of the Holy Spirit of God. He can be offended. He can be grieved. He can be opposed. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But look what it says in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve. That is to make sorrowful or distress the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that's encouraging, right? No, even if you and I were to do it. We should not quench. We should not grieve. But those of us who are in Christ... We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Now, some people would say this, then if I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, what does it matter if I grieve the Holy Spirit? I mean, he's not going anywhere. I'm sealed. I've been given him as a permanent promise, a permanent indwelling until Christ comes again. I'm good. I can't lose him. Why should I worry about quenching him or grieving him? Because he's stuck. Well, here's something that you might ask yourself. You know, he dwells within you in a permanent indwelling. Imagine if you can that you were in a dwelling place with another person you and another person living in the same place and then imagine that between you and that person 
you had one of them is upset, distressed. How do things end up working out? In the context of that dwelling place where there is there is antagonism, enmity, animosity, distress. How are things in that household? Is good? No, what people, do you really think that you can grieve the Holy Spirit and you're going to be good and you're going to be fine and there's no secondary effect of that? Do you really think that you can uh, mistreat, horribly lash out at someone who's living in your vicinity and that's not going to have an ongoing impact on your own well-being? I think we all know it surely will have an impact on our well-being. Now, before we unpack the idea of grieving, there, there's a strong sense in which we need to understand this. Though we can grieve the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit works in a number of different ways, and He carries out a lot of different works. With regard to the creating and saving activity of the Holy Spirit, that is unstoppable. That is guaranteed. That is sure. As sure as Genesis 1-2, when the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters and God is speaking the world into existence, in the creative power of the Holy Spirit, it is done. When the New Testament says, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, when the Spirit has come to us in the gospel and makes us a new creation, that is not something that we can resist. That is the powerful work, divine working of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely irresistible. Even the scriptures are clear in John, for example. John 3, verses 6 to 8. It says, that which is born of flesh... Is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit it's distinguishing but comparing the idea of being born of the flesh and being born of the spirit now when we go back to the idea of being born in the flesh while you were yet in mama's womb did the doctor and you enter into a conversation so are you ready to come out yet are you willing to participate in this event? Are you willing to cooperate with all that's going on? Does any of that go on with regard to childbirth? No. The child is, you know, even if the child was to kick and scream and fight against it, mama's bearing down, the doctor is pulling out, and the child is being born, whether he wants to or not. And if he, even if all things go wrong, then they're going to cut the kid out. That which is flesh is flesh. And when someone is born into this world, not a single one of us made a choice in that regard. No one goes, and with regard to the world in which we live in, where they talk about the right to choose and the right to life, has anyone ever inquired of the child, so you want to... You want to have a go, or you just want to make pass on the whole thing of life? Does anyone ever ask the child that? Why not? Because the child is incapable of understanding and incapable of responding. Such as a man when he is in the death of sin. He is incapable. But like when 
Child pains come upon the mother and she begins to deliver when the Spirit of God comes upon a sinful man in the gospel. Delivery takes place. That which is born of spirit is spirit, which is why it goes on to say in John 6, verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It depends on who? The Spirit and the Spirit alone. When He blows, someone is born. And that's simply the way that it works. That is a powerful, unstoppable, sure reality. That is, a, we could say that that working of, of the Spirit of God is unquenchable. But beyond the divine working of the Spirit of God, there is a working of the Spirit in the souls of the saints, of those that the Spirit has sanctified, separated from the world, and brought into the kingdom of God, there is not merely the divine power that does that, and continued divine power at work within us, but there's what oft is called divine influences. And with regard to divine influences, there is the possibility that we can quench the spirit when we can grieve the spirit though the spirit can never be gone in Isaiah 63 concerning the ch children of Israel Isaiah 63 verse 10 it says this but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them I want us to understand this very clearly. And we know this from Hebrews. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens or he disciplines. Those who grieve the spirit, it speaks of the spirit reaction. And this is important because maybe sometimes if someone offends or grieves or makes sorrowful another person, this is what they do. Oh, oh. I'm going to go to bed and just and that's it. And they just in sorrow go to bed and have no more. You know, I, I give I, I give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. Yeah, brothers and sisters, that's not the way the Holy Spirit works. You, you don't quench him or grieve him in a way to where the Holy Spirit gives up. You've been sealed to the day of redemption. Here is a very clear passage that express, expresses the Holy Spirit being grieved. And what is the Holy Spirit's response to that? Oh, you're going to seek to suppress and stifle my good and godly influences? You're going to face some consequences. So, so remember, this isn't just suggestions for a uh, a better way of living and a better life. There is more joy. There is more peace. But there is the reality. When you walk with God. And when, you're, when you are. You know that you're walking in the way that's pleasing in his sight. There, there is a, a, a firm confidence. That even when the storms. When the trials. When, when the difficulties come. You know that you're right with God. There is a peace that passes understanding. There is a calm in the midst of the storm.
But when you know you've got a foot off that path, you know, it's, it's kind of that thing where don't want to look him in the eyes because if he sees me, and I, he, he'll, he'll see right through me. He'll know what I've done. Well, here's the problem. That may be there with one another. If, if you look him in the eyes, it may betray what you're hiding. Yet God doesn't need to look us in the eyes to know what we're hiding. We're off that path, you know, and, and, it, and it affects our sense of stability. It affects our confidence. It affects our walk. There are profound and tragic effects to quenching the Spirit. That's why we've got to understand this. So many times people see the commands and the instructions of God's Word and says, Wow, I could make lists and lists of all the things God wants me to do. But if you could put at the top of that list, these will please God and bring me peace and joy. That's a totally different issue. We face those things and sometimes we think, oh no, more that I have to do instead of, ah, more that leads me to peace and joy in Christ. Remember, that's why we always often try to remember what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. And this is the love of God, that we obey His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why are there not a burden? Because actually, His commandments, the commandments of men, burden us down. The commandments of God lift us up under the divine influence to a real vivid sense of a nearness and a communion with God. Which who doesn't want that rich and vital relationship and communion with God? And so we can grieve the spirit, but he will never be gone. If we rebel against him, we've got to understand that there will be some kinds of consequences. Listen concerning the work of the spirit of God in John chapter 16, John chapter 16, verse 8 through 12. Jesus, in speaking of the spirit coming, says this. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. The divine influence of the Spirit will give people a stronger sense of right and wrong. But are there some people who hear that and resist that? Are there some who for a moment sense their sinfulness and kind of want to turn over a new leaf? Kind of want forgiveness and a fresh Start in life, which is very different than forgiveness and a new life in Christ. There's a big difference. The world wants many times a fresh start and a new life in the world. But there's a difference when the Spirit comes. It is, so people can hear the gospel. They can hear it preached. They can come under some degree of conviction and awareness that, that these things are wrong. There is a sense in which we're told back in Ecclesiastes that God has bound up eternity in the hearts of men. But not so that he can find out 
what has happened from the end to the beginning. So men have a sense of someday there's a judgment. Someday there's a standing. They often have a sense of I'm not deserving. I'm not right. And the preaching of God's word clearly tells people you're unrighteous. You're sinful. You don't meet the standards. And people can come under that sense of awareness, but not be saved. The way that, the way that we, would, we would see it stated in Scripture, for example, in Acts chapter 7 is where you kind of hear have Stephen, as he's been really proclaiming Christ to those that gathered around him who are soon to stone him, he says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as did your fathers. You always oppose, you always strive against. There might be a moment in which someone says, oh no, I need to change. Oh no, I'm not good enough. But then they begin to rationalize. Yeah, but better than them and, and better than them. And I think in the end, I've probably done as much good as bad. So I think it's going to be okay. Is any of that true? No, it's not going to be okay. But there is that resisting of the spirit where the word is declared and they hear it and it's clear, but they're not able to hear it with real acceptance and sensitivity. Another way that the Spirit of God is quenched is like this. The Scripture speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5, verse 16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So you have these two desires that the scriptures often speak of. These two desires that are waging war within us. The passions of the flesh and the influence of the Spirit of God. There is to walk by the Spirit or there is to yield or compromise in the way of the flesh. These things are opposed to one another. And here's one of the things. How do we more strongly extinguish or quench the powerful influence of the flesh by walking in the spirit because these things are opposed to it as we walk in the spirit live out God's word live in obedience to it the the power of the flesh continues to weaken against us but as we yield to the desires of the flesh what happens? The desires of the flesh are opposed to the spirit. And so by yielding to, by doing the things that our flesh desires, we are what? Quenching the spirit by inflaming the flesh. What are we to fan the flames of? What are we to stir up? The flesh or the spirit? And, and, he, and so it, here, here's the interesting thing. Some people like to think, well, I can, if I'm quenching the spirit, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going worldly. The scripture so consistently negates middle ground. 
It's either honoring or dishonoring. It's either obedient or disobedience. It's either of the spirit or it's of the flesh. It doesn't allow for us to live in this world of neutrality. Where people think, even if you ask them, 90% of the things I do are just neutral. You know? And then there are a few things I do that are bad and a few things that I do are good. Well, for the children of God, we are to pray in the Spirit at all times. We are to walk in the Spirit at all times. We are to, in everything, make it our desire to please Him. Whether we eat or drink, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord. So is there anything that remains neutral? Everything is to be taken up in praise, awareness, honor, appreciation, love for God. Nothing else. Do not quench the spirit. It warns us of this uh, later in Galatians 5, down in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. It is dead with regard to its dominion over us. As it says in Romans 6, sin will no longer have mastery over you. Listen, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Then Galatians 6 warns of this in verse 8. The one who sows to the flesh will reap from his flesh corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit eternal life. So how does that work out? So don't grow weary in doing good. In the due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone especially to the family of faith. We have that priority of our dear family, the people of God, where we, we are committedly doing good to them, but beyond that, we do good to everyone. And we do that, look, to do that is to walk in step with the Spirit. To do that is to not quench the Spirit. So when we take up and, and we live in with residual resentment and bitterness towards someone? Are we in step with the Spirit? Are, are, are we able, in, in, that, in that mentality, are we inflaming and strengthening and emboldening the in, and yielding to the influence of the Spirit? Or are we quenching it? As the Spirit would have us forgive, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. As He would have us show mercy as ones who have been shown so much mercy, as we quench those powerful spiritual realities and the overflow in our relationships with one another, do we think there's not consequences? And I will warn you of this. As uh, to a certain sense, as uh, God said to Cain, and as we move forward, do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give him a foothold. You may think, but I'm not involved in wild immorality. I'm not involved in murder. I'm not involved in theft. Uh, I, I just um, have some very valid resentments and malice towards this person. And God understands why I do. Yet, yet not acceptable. Yeah, God understands why you do. And he tells you, you offended him far more than they've ever offended you. 
you are less deserving of mercy and forgiveness than they are from you. The one you offended was without fault and without error and without flaw, perfect in all that he did. In your interaction with that person, I guarantee if, you were to, if someone were to interview both of you, guess who's the culprit or the villain in the minds of each one? The other person. That's how it often goes. Very rarely will, does someone say, yeah, me and that person don't get along and it's all my fault, really. Nobody says that, uh, even though it may be the case. Uh, all right, so let's keep going. We, we want to remember this idea and we do, do not quench the Spirit of God. His saving work, His creative work cannot be quenched. The world can resist the influences of the word. And there's a certain sense in which we also hear the word preached. You also hear the word coming out. And that's why we, we kind of go into the next part of it. The, se the second thing in there is not only do not quench the spirit. It says do not despise prophecies. Under the gifts of the spirit, the manifestations of the spirit, among those gifts was the gift of prophecy. Within the gift of prophecy, for example, we see in Acts 20 and 21, it says, through the Spirit, the people were urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So as people are communicating to you uh, their sense of those things that, that would be their best understanding of what would be the will of God for us, their best uh, urging of the application of God's truth, Consider those things. We're, gonna, we're, we're just a step away from an important part in this, but it's also important to look for a moment back at the Puritans. The Puritans in the early days of the America, one of the interesting things, uh, they would produce books, for example, on preaching for ministers that would even be called things like the art of prophesying. Because so much of prophesying, in a sense, we're urging with, with, with a spiritual imploring, with, with the influences of the Spirit, uh, impressing on people how they ought to take the Word of God and apply it in the practical ways of their lives, has a very prophetic edge to it. And, and, and there's a sense in which as we hear God's word preached, as we hear God's word spoken, and then as we hear the urgings on us how we need to make those applications in our lives, we don't just say, I understand the doctrine. I believe the theology. We also want to consider and yield ourselves to genuine, wholehearted living of those things that we are hearing about, that we are learning. Uh, really, we, we see that, that coming under the next ones. Now, it says, so do not despise prophecies because prophecies is a way that the Spirit would give urgings and, and encouragements and influences to people. But wherever there is true movements of the Spirit, bringing application, bringing direction, bringing practical urgings, you know what else can be there? False prophecies. People telling you things that they think the Spirit wants you to do because they want you to do it. 
And so we're not only told about the spirit, the not quenching of the spirit, but I would say from the, um, the quenching of the spirit, we move on to the call to scrutiny. That's our second point today, the call to scrutiny. Test everything. Somebody says, you know, I just think you need to change the way you're living here. Well, test everything. Now, in, well, test everything is pretty comprehensive. One, test what that person is saying. Is that really consistent with the Word of God? You know what else I get to test in that? Me. If that is consistent with the Word of God, how is what I'm doing in agreement with, in accord with, or not in agreement with, or not in accord with those things. Test everything. Now, it's important to know this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. The, the phrase there is a phrase of totality, and it's very important because there are some of our dear brothers and sisters in Christianity who are slightly misled these days. They, they want to speak about a vibrant, um, active, energetic, enthusiastic power. Say, but is what's going on here, is it of the Spirit of God? And sometimes they get this answer, don't question it. Don't question the Spirit. How, how dare you question what the Spirit is doing? Yeah, but uh, you know, there, there is historically, years and years ago, there were outbreaks and supposedly outpourings of the Holy Spirit in extraordinary ways back on the West Coast in what were called the Azusa Street Meetings. Maybe some of you have heard it. Many groups trace their heritage back to those Azusa Street meetings. And surely in the midst of those things, there were some genuine people. But people were gathering and they were so involved in the activities and the messages and the events and the experiences that were going on in those days. But in the same thing, as people would pass through the campgrounds near Azusa Street in the evenings... During the day, these people supposedly so moved by and filled with the Spirit in the nights, so moved by and enthralled with the flesh, being caught in, ramp caught in rampant immoralities, intense all over the place, thinking uh, emotion and enthusiasm unbridled is not what it's all about. Actually, if you don't test everything, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. Because who has given us the word? God, through his men, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to give it to us. So indeed, it is the Spirit of God who himself says, test everything. There are some who go so far. I've heard it often. Um, when... Uh, there, someone was coming with, a, with this, these massive healing meetings who, in, to Mauritius who was a, a clearly a false teacher and a false prophet. Some of the people in the church there were, were going to these other churches and saying, 
How can you support this man? How can you stand alongside this man? And they're saying, who are you to speak against the man of God? Who are you to challenge the one? Well, how dare you question God's man? Listen, how dare you not question him? Test everything. And when I say test everything, you know what that means? Yeah, test me. My responsibility before God is to say everything accurately and correctly. But your responsibility is not to merely take my word as truth. You need to test it against the scriptures. Even as we briefly considered this morning in Acts chapter 17, after being in Thessalonica, moving over to Berea, what made the people in Berea more noble than those in Thessalonica? The word that they were being taught daily, they were taking it and examining the scriptures to see whether or not it is so. I'll tell you what, anyone who is a teacher or a preacher, anyone who will say anything spiritual to one another, who says, just, just take my word for it, whether you find it in your Bible or not, watch out for them. Now, again, there's not necessarily a chapter and verse on every issue, but nonetheless, there are relevant principles that apply to every area of our lives. And we can see wonderful examples and illustrations of how things play out. So test everything. We remember 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 says, Test the spirits, for not every spirit that has gone out is from God. So you test the spirit, you test the teacher, you test... Well, if, how dare we test? To test the spirit is not to reject or to quench the spirit. Indeed, the spirit desires you to test them. How do I know it is the desire and the pleasure of the spirit of God for you to test everything, even that that would seem to come from him? Because he's the one who said it. Test everything we're called to scrutiny and and really this phrase is a common phrase in those days for something that was often tested by fire so sometimes if you think of that holy spirit as a flame test it you take that thing and you hold it up to the fire and if it burns away then it's not the pure metal it was some other element that shouldn't be there it that at the very least, the heating of it, even if it didn't burn up, the heating of precious metals would separate the alloys from the precious metals. And you would be able to distinguish, ah, this was not pure gold. This was only 10 carat gold plated. It wasn't pure gold at all and, and that idea of putting it up to the fire now how do we do that we test everything by all that the spirit has given us in his word is this in accordance with all the spirits given us is this in accordance with truth and again we test everything but here it's important i want us to to, to see even as we we carry on into this idea listen it 
in terms of testing everything that, that is, examine every spirit, examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? We are urged towards this idea of discernment that comes through this testing. Philippians 1, 9 and following says this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Okay, so the expression of Christian love abounds more and more. How? With knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve, that is approved by testing. Test and find to pass the test. What is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for Christ in the day. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5.10 it says try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words we don't just drift. We don't just carry on. We don't just face things as they come. In everything we engage it with awareness and scrutiny. Test everything. That leaves nothing out. And not only test. Beyond the call to scrutiny. I would say the commitment to steadfastness. Second part of verse 21 says this. Test everything. And hold fast. To what is good. So it's not just test everything. So that you can point it out. I've known. Some individuals. And I hope the best for where they're at right now in their maturity and spirituality who love to be testers. Not seemingly first and foremost to hold to what is true. But so they can point out, that's wrong, that's right, you're wrong, you're right, I'm the tester. Yeah, now part of that is they're testing everything, but they're applying that test mostly to others' actions, others' teaching, not necessarily testing themselves. But in everything that is tested, you hold fast to what is good. You're not testing everything just so you can say bad, good, bad, good. You're testing everything so that you can hold fast to what is good. That That is that idea of Hold in your possession, cling to those things that are good. Really, the, the term of it, is it, it, this term for hold fast to is a term that is connected to nautical phrasing, all right? which means sea, faring, boats, water, out there. What someone would hold fast it would be, in the, in the phrase, it would be like holding their course. That's, they're, they're going this direction, and they're holding their course. Now, under certain circumstances, it becomes harder to hold the course. When the winds kick up, and the waves are billowing, it, 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 it becomes something really hard. When, when everything's peaceful and calm, it's pretty easy to hold that course. But when, when the water is now rushing against that rudder underneath and, and the wind is trying to pull a different direction, for you to hold that course takes a lot of commitment, a lot of endurance, a lot of work. Hold fast to what is good. 
you are going to relentlessly keep it. Not simply in an awareness, but what you're all about and how you're living. It's an it's a, it's amazing phrase. And, and then it, verse 22 gives the simple contrast of this. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form or every appearance of evil. So you have tested everything. Is it right or wrong? True or false? Good or evil? Now it's important for us. We could say good or bad. We like to think there's good, bad, and then evil's way over here. No, 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 no. Not scripturally. Evil and bad are the same thing. The opposite. And what does the idea abstain mean? Abstinence, it is the idea of take no part in, to shun, to separate yourself from, to distance yourself from. That's the term here. Now, what's interesting is there's, there's two ways that this particular word is handled. Abstain from every form of evil. The old King James says, abstain from every appearance of evil, which carries with it very important ideas. Even as we move into some of the instruction that talks about men who would be qualified for leadership in the church, it says, it says often among those things, they must be well spoken of by outsiders. Which means it's not only that they're not doing wrong, but they are careful to not be in places, events, and circumstances where someone could have a doubt that they might be doing wrong. Well, well for example, if someone is constantly going into uh, a bar every evening, Will people always conclude, I bet they never drink when they go in there. I bet they're never drunk. What, what would be the conclusion that people would draw from that? I bet you sometimes it, it, it would have the appearance of, was, had to deal one, was dealing one time with um, uh, a young man, actually not so young, who was quite zealous evangelistically. And... Uh, he came, you know, he was often trying to get involved in different evangelistic opportunities, which was fantastic. But then he came to me and he said, this one place that I've been going, um, they're trying to get me not to go there anymore. And so I just want you to pray that, uh, that uh, I won't be stopped from going there. I said, well, where is this place that you're going? And he said, well, it's, it's a brothel. That is, let me, it, it is a prostitute house. So he was going into a prostitute house late at night and trying to share the gospel with all the clientele in the prostitute house. And I know his, his, his commitment was genuine and sincere to meet those people in their sin and call them out of their sin. But I want to ask you another question. If the neighbor or the neighbor's kid sees him going in there or coming out of there at 1 a.m., what are the thoughts going to be? I bet he was in there evangelizing. That's probably not the conclusion that they're going to draw. And so, you, 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 now listen to this. Before anyone goes into that place, and, and this is what I told him, every single person who goes into that brothel, you know what else they do? 
They go shopping for food. They go get gas at gas stations. <laughs> They're everywhere else in the world. You, you can meet them in the world and in the flow of life. And indeed, you should meet them and hunt them down. But if you go into the den of iniquity, someone will see that and have a doubt. Abstain from every appearance of evil. And beyond appearance of evil, the, the, it carries the, the newer translations say every form of evil. Which means there's no expression of wrong. That you could say, let me, let me list bad things on a scale of 1 to 10. You know, kind of bad, less than good, and, and then on, on down to horrific. All right? And, uh, you know, the ones kind of, not so good, kind of bad. I, you know, I'll go ahead and entertain those a bit. No, no, no. We, you make, there's two lists, good and bad. Pleasing and displeasing, honoring and dishonoring, and you abstain from every form of evil. Who does that perfectly? Yeah, not a person that I know. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3 said, said this, remembering before God, our Father, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. There is a commitment to steadfastness, to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from what is evil. And I guess in that we got to go back to hold fast to what is good and to abstain from every form of evil. You got to be steadfast in scrutiny, testing everything. Because, well, how does this look? How is this going to come across? I mean, there can be this tendency and we want to be careful with this. People think, look, I know I'm not sinning and God knows I'm not, I'm not sinning. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And people sometimes think that was remarkably spiritual of me to say that because, you know, it made God everything and everybody else nothing. No, you should care what other people think because the scriptures warn that you can be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters. You can, you can offend them. You can hurt them. And, and when you do that, it is displeasing to God. You, you actually ought to seek to please others rather than yourselves. And so, so the, this, uh, this whole idea that, you know what, it's all doesn't matter what other people think. It does matter because you know who you represent? God. Now, even if the, the people will malign us and accuse us, they will, because of our righteous deeds... They will glorify God on the day of his visitation. When he comes again, they will be glorified. Their mouths will be closed even though they speak against us now. Like when we say there's only one salvation, there's only one savior, there's only one hope. They'll speak against us. Maybe as arrogant, um, narrow-minded. But someday they'll say, you said what was true. You said what needed to be said. If only we had listened. You know, uh, again, I, I don't know where the world is going, where, where you're not allowed to declare what is true. Apparently, you know, people are moving towards not even being allowed to, I don't know what's going to happen in a few years when a child is born. You can't even ask, is it a boy or a girl? You know, it's a child. 
No, it, it, it is. All of these things, there, there are clear paths, clear right, wrong, yes, no, things that are unquestionable. And it has to have that kind of clarity that we hold fast. Now, this holding fast, I'm going to show you, just show you two ways in conclusion how we must hold fast. We hold fast, one, to good doctrine. That which proves to be true in the scriptures. Uh, one of the things in 1 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, that is keep or hold firmly the traditions as I delivered them to you. So this unwavering holding to the truth that was delivered to us by the apostles. Again, the kind of thing that we saw this morning at the end of 1 Peter in chapter 5 there, it says, this is the true grace of God. There is no other message. There is no other truth. There is no other love. There is no other salvation. And so we test all teachings and we hold firmly to what is true. But not only that, we test everything. So it's not only good doctrine, it's good doings. In Romans 12, 9, it says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. In Proverbs 4, 4, it says like this, He taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words and keep my commandments and live. See, that idea of holding fast to the words is connected indelibly to what? Keeping his commandments. So it is believing and behaving, right? It is doctrine and doing. These things cannot be and should not be, must not be separated and divided. Really, I want one more, one more verse before I conclude, and it's this. 2 Thessalonians 3. Verse 4 and 5 says this, we have this confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command you. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. When we consider the love that he had for us, nothing so motivates and stirs up and wells up our love for him. We indeed love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And he loved us and gave his only son for us so that we love him and we give our entire lives for him. The same kind of thought, not only that, the, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. With regard to Christ's steadfastness in doctrine and doing, where did he fail? Was there any point in his life? He was faithful in all that he taught and all that he did. He lived absolutely under the authority of his father every moment of his entire life, even unto his death. Consider the steadfastness of Christ in everything. What a tremendous motivation. So three simple thoughts that we learn from this passage. One, we're warned about the quenching of the Spirit. We want to not quench the Spirit by following our own hearts, following the desires of the flesh, by not yielding to the influences of the Word of God and the encouragement of brothers and sisters, as the Spirit may be prompting. We also want to uh, not quench the Spirit uh, by living in sinful ways, disregarding the Scriptures even as it is preached. With regard to not quenching the Spirit, we're also called 
to scrutiny, to test everything. They're saying that this is true. They're saying this is to be done. They're saying I should do this. They're saying you should do this. They're saying we should do this. They're saying we should believe this. What does God himself say? What is pleasing? What is honoring in his sight? The call to scrutiny. And lastly, the commitment to steadfastness. Steadfastness in all of our good doctrine and steadfastness in all commitment to good doings. To everyone and especially the family of faith. And we do it constantly in remembrance of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. We do it because we're His. We do it because He's at work within us. We do it with our eyes upon, our hearts upon, an awareness of and in an approach to our God and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, as we... Uh, just consider these things. It seems so simple, these little commandments, but to live these things out in our lives, we need more and more grace. And God, it is often in, in my own experience when I see these things that I, I've shortlisted what I think are the big things. And as long as the big things are right, I'm somehow content God, grant that we will not be content or complacent with any deficiency in, in what, we, what we know and what we believe and what we practice. God, give us uh, hearts and minds of greater increased diligence. Lord, that we would be a people who would not quench the Spirit. Indeed, that we would be readily receptive to the Spirit's word and to the Spirit's influence. That with regard to that, we would be scrutinizing and testing everything to be sure that it is indeed what you, by your Spirit, have, have delivered to us and what is pleasing. And Lord, that in leaning upon you, because you hold us firm in your hand and because of your life and grace that is within us, we now, as those alive in Christ, can and must ourselves grip firmly and because of the strength that you supply, not let go. Cling more and more to the good. Turn and shun more and more those things that are displeasing and those things that might even appear dishonoring. Lord, that we would not even want uh, the slightest stain or spot that would bring reproach or shame on your name to which we belong and that is everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.